Socrates, there he is, Socrates. Can you mark? Let's see if he can put some life into this German attack. Never do you an angle there. Socrates heads in and Leibniz doesn't have a chance. And here come the Greeks, led out by their veteran centre-half, Heraclitus. This is Philosophy for Theologians, the newest program from Reform Forum. Online at reformforum.org. My name is Camden Busey. I'm very pleased here to be broadcasting out of Studio B in Glenside, Pennsylvania. I am very, also very pleased to be here aside Jonathan Brack, who's a student and admissions counselor at Westminster here in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Thanks for having us over, Jonathan. Great to be here. We also have Jared Oliphant, who is director of admissions at Westminster Theological Seminary. Thanks for coming over, Jared. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Not bad. <laughs> well, today we're going to be speaking about another philosophical topic. Uh, we're going to give a very brief overview of logical positivism. Logical positivism? Logical positivism. Which LP. Is a, <laughs> a school of philosophy that combines empiricism uh, along with a version of rationalism that uses mathematics and uh, logical linguistic constructs and deductions and epistemology. So it, it's, a, it's a kind of a combo view of, of different forms of philosophy, and we're going to give a, a brief introduction to this. Now, if I'm correct, this came into into view uh, maybe in the mid-20th century? That's right, uh, early 1920s. Right. I think uh, Heidegger had some training in logical positivism and then moved on from it. Is Husserl one of the MIG figures in this in this sphere? Uh, he's probably not a central one, but the, it, he's you know reflective of the climate that was going around mm. at that time, and so this really puts that um, to a point of just what was going on in terms of science, uh, metaphysics, all those kinds of questions. So, tell us about logical positivism. What is it, and uh, why is it important to know about? Yeah, as as we mentioned before, uh, it started in the early 1920s, and I should also mention that a lot of this material is borrowing from what we mentioned uh, last week uh, in the Jones volume, and that is A History of Western Philosophy. Um, this is, again, borrowing from the volume five, which is the 20th century to Quine and Derrida. Um, so he has a, really a whole section um, called Logical Positivism, where he just lays out the arguments, who are the figures. Um it started, uh, logical positivism really started with uh, a group called the Vienna Circle. Um, this was in 1920 uh, or early 1920s, and it was around the University of Vienna and a group of um, intellectuals with, with different professions, um, most in the sciences. There were no, uh, you know, quote unquote professional philosophers uh, engaged in this, but it was mathematicians, physicists, sociologists, um, economists. So we really see some cross-pollinization. It's really trying to take in insights from all sorts of different disciplines to answer some of the difficult questions in philosophy. That's right. It's yeah. um, science proper plus social sciences, which really had um, just they come always onto get the second scene. billing. I know, yeah. And uh, social and sciences. And social <laughs> sciences. <laughs> ones. Yeah, right. Social quote-unquote science. But um, all those guys were grouped into this uh, this view called logical positivism. I don't know if the this uh, Vienna circle, as it was called, actually coined this phrase or if this was um, coined by other people observing what they were doing. But at any rate, um, part of what, what Jones points out is this group wanted to show that the cognitive claims of the sciences are fully warranted. And they believe that they had a, uh, found a way of doing um, this, um, pointing out how it is fully warranted. Um, positivism was, uh, in fact, determinedly um, anti-metaphysical. Mm. Um, and so that's part of the reason why we're talking about it, because it definitely has implications for um, 
Christianity and obviously Reformed Christianity as well. You mentioned earlier that Hegel has influence, and this is and this is an instance of that. Sure, um, not Hegel. I'm sorry, Heidegger. Heidegger. <laughs> Heidegger. <laughs> sure. Who claims I'm not doing me- metaphysics here? Sure. Yeah. There's always the three H's, three German H's that get confused. It's Heidegger, Husserl, and um, Hegel. They're always mentioned. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Triple um, H. <laughs> they really what the Vienna Circle or logical positivists wanted to do is use philosophy to, to destroy all of philosophy except the part that can be called the logic of the sciences. Hmm. Um, so again, science is just really the supreme rule over everything else. The science is in! Science! That's actually a direct quote from the Vienna Circle. It's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Again, you don't have to listen to this program. <laughs> yeah, may not be your cup of tea. But the Vienna Circle, um, they went on to define something called the verifiability principle, which will be uh, hugely influential in uh, empirical circles and empiricism. And um, so let me go on to explain that a little bit more. Um, they thought that they should uh, extend the use of the scientific method um, in all domains. So epistemological, um, whatever you want to, you know, discover or uh, learn about, you should use the scientific method because at that point, that apparently had been proven beyond a reasonable doubt to be completely and undeniably true. Mm. That was that was the method of the day, the method du jour that reigned over everything else. They're big bacon fans. That's right. Yeah, I can make a lot of jokes about that, but I will not. Francis Bacon. Yeah. So, um. The verifiability principle, um, this goes hand in hand with that, uh, the verifiability principle asserted that the meaning of a proposition is its mode of verification. And then Jones goes on to describe this. Um, He says, but we can't by philosophical analysis decide whether anything is real, but only what it means to say that it is real. And whether this is then the case or not can be decided only by the usual methods of daily life and of science. That is through experience. Mm. So experience reigns over everything. Um, that is the the driving forth, and the scientific method is is wrapped up in that. And the verifiability principle says that anything that we claim must be verified. You've got to point to it. Um, so Jones goes on: the meaning of a word must, in the end, be shown. It must be given. Um, and this is done by an act of indication of pointing. And what is pointed at must be given. Otherwise, um, I cannot be referred to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it's very empiricist-driven, um, and the empiricist does not say to the metaphysician, "What you say is false," but what you say asserts nothing at all. So it's it's a stronger claim that um, it's not saying that uh, metaphysics is false. It's saying that metaphysics really doesn't speak to anything whatsoever. It's complete nonsense. So when you talk about ultimate meaning of the universe. That's just completely nonsense. We can't discover that. You can't point to ultimate meaning in the universe. You can't point to universals. You can't point to all those types of things that religion takes for granted and just metaphysics as a philosophical discipline takes for granted as well. When I learned uh, about logical positivism um, and metaphysics in undergrad, the example that was given to me was, well, it does have some meaning, but not the meaning that we're actually looking for. Uh, the meaning it has is the same sort of meaning that you have when you go to a Cubs game and you go, yay, Cubs, right? It's a lot there's, of meaning in that for me. Right, <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't, so there's some, you know, emotional Go responses Phillies. there, and, but it, 
it doesn't have anything to say about you know what the Cubs are in and of themselves, mm. or it does, it's just you're cheering for something, but you're not actually saying you know with logic and rationality and and verifying through proof you know the the essence of things or the the fact of things it's something that can actually be pointed to, and you're just cheering for it. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So Jones points out last week we talked about Bertrand Russell and his influence mm-hmm. um, and and what the philosophical and theological climate was in his day. Jones goes on to point out that um, the positivists uh, learn from Russell. He says uh, the aim, according to positivists, of logical analysis is to clarify the statements that are made in the sciences in order to reveal their true cognitive content. Um, and so, you know, it's just empiricism drives everything they're looking at the lab they're looking at the findings that they discover through the scientific method and um they they just don't allow anything else because like russell mathematical certainty or scientific certainty has to come first before anything else um that's where they depend on there were a lot of advances in the sciences um from the 19th century and it carried over into the 20th century we talked about newton and how einstein really um, came along and refined that. Um, so they're just observing this and saying, look, this is the way to go epistemologically um, and cognitively. So um, going on, Jones Jones talks a lot about this. Um, he gets into Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein was very much related to this, and I don't want to go... Um... But it's Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein, <laughs> last week. Yeah. Wittgenstein's a difficult character. Yeah. It really is. He actually ended up making a lot of the guys... The logical positivists upset. That's right? right. That's exactly right. He was one of the first to actually kind of tear down some of their assumptions. Really? But, yeah. yeah. And, and Jones has a section in, in this volume um, that says how the positivists read the Tractatus. Um, and just a, a brief section on Wittgenstein. Um, Vic, there's kind of the early Wittgenstein and later Wittgenstein. Yeah. The, the early Wittgenstein focus on the Tractatus um, or Tractatus. Uh, in this this section, this paragraph reads, but what Wittgenstein said about the sayable, remember we talked about the sayable, what can be known through the verifiable um, principle, um, through empiricism, etc., was quite another matter. The positivist program rested first on the basic assumption of the whole analytic tradition that analysis terminates in simples or, or units, and second on the special assumption generated by the logical investigations of Frege and Russell that when language has been correctly analyzed, it will be isomorphic with the world. The structures of the sentences in which we make assertions about the world must exactly mirror the structures that characterize the world about which these assertions are made. Mm. So anything we say has got to line up with empirical observations that we make about physical reality. Mm-hmm. And that is the driving force um, for all of logical positivism. And we see this today um, so many people, when you talk about faith and science issues, a lot of what is discussed is um, that science has clear, um, provable um, definitions of things that things like religion and faith and metaphysics just can't even touch in terms of certainty, level of certainty. So, you know, all this stuff was going on in the early 1920s, and it really still has ramifications today. Mm. So... All that is to say, I just wanted to get a, a really brief introduction of what was going on back in the early 20th century. And you can really trace how that has affected, I mean, even theology. Um, we were talking about liberalism earlier. 
liberalism was really a reaction against this type of thinking. So when Christian theologians who weren't as confident in the scriptures as they should have been look at this type of evidence-driven, empirical-driven um, philosophy, they say, okay, well, I really can't prove the resurrection of Christ. Exactly. Um, I can't point to it, and there's no way for me to demonstrate it under these conditions. So what do I do? Well, I deny that. I deny the historicity of Christ or the historicity of Adam because I can't prove it. And I glean from that the moral principles Mm. that are taught in Scripture, and that's where I hang my hat in order to be a Christian. Um, And again, last week we touched on Machen and saying, no, that is not at all Christianity. That is a form of moralism and ethics that is completely against what Scripture teaches in general. A lot of times I hear in the current debate that— hanging on to the fact of the resurrection is an outcome of modernity. Um, but the fact, uh, the actual process of taking apart Scripture and the historicity of Scripture is actually a direct role, result of the outcome of modernism, which is this sort of thinking, which is logical positivism. So if anybody's actually going to be labeled a modernist when it comes to philosophical structures— it's those that actually end up denying the historicity of Scripture as opposed to affirming it. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, you mentioned modernism. Um, what about its cousin or brother, we might even say, uh, postmodernism? How has postmodernism or postmodernity attacked logical positivism in the scientific method? Yeah, it, it focuses, uh, it sees the errors of logical positivism, one of which is um, a lot of people have said, even on a logical level, um, you know, if you're so focused on the science, sciences, um, the verifiability principle cannot prove itself. There's nothing that you can point to to say, oh, well, you know, de- deduced and concluded and empirically verified right here in my lab report is that the verifiability principle is true. Mm. That's a theory that um, is just demonstrated. Um so it's, you know, the, the technical philosophical term for that is self-referentially incoherent. Yeah. Um, the verifiability principle cannot prove itself. So, <laughs> so postmodernity recognizes this and says, okay, well, even at their basic foundation, um, logical positivism and modernism all express basically in, in similar ways, if not the same way, um, is not the way to go. So what do we focus on? It, it goes to the other extreme and says, what needs to be emphasized then is the narratival structure and the story of history mm. and the um, you know the individual um, as the focus of everything, which actually does have modernist roots, but they define it in different ways in different um, postmodern ways. Yeah, I was only going to add that you can obviously see that you know the logical positivists are actually beginning to have influence um, in other you know sciences or soft sciences where. Language is one where you have Sassoura, oh, yes. who's building up uh, a construct, right, of of the meaning of language based on this these sorts of principles, and then what you have in the the opposite, right? Uh, so th- the postmodern side is you have people who deconstruct it, mm-hmm. right? They take apart one by one down to the core and even get to you know self-referentially incoherent at the end mm-hmm. of the day. Yeah. So a good example of that is you have. Yeah, you have Bertrand Russell at one end saying a lot of things about uh, language, and then you have Saussure, right? And then the deconstructionist would be Derrida, who at the end, of, you know, they ha- they say this is what meaning is, and Derrida and the other side says we can't say what we mean, we can't mean what we say. So there's um, there's that pendulum swing. 
Yeah, constantly. very much so. Yeah, it's it's an overcorrection, and this this relates to theological um, our theological circles. So when you're discussing the historicity of Adam, which is a hotly contested issue right now for a number of reasons, um, you know, to to say that you know science. Uh, the science of the day has basically proved that Adam couldn't have existed because we all know that evolution in its current form in the popular scientific um, view is, is definitely true. And so how do you relate that to what scripture says about how, um, you know, man, man was created and Adam being a person and and all those kinds of things. Um, It's basically saying, yeah, we relent. We say that uh, the current popular scientific theories of the day are completely 100% accurate, um, and, and the Christian's responsibility is to, okay, we, we relent. We say that that's okay. And so you force the scriptural passages to fit into that um, modernist or postmodernist or logical po- positivist or whatever the reconstruction is of the current day, mm. um, and that is completely 100% not the way to go, partially because even on its own terms— um, you know, Darwinism in that form is just, you know, on its knees right now. I mean, the, the guys who are doing the serious work on evolution are really, um, you know, putting a lot of holes in those classical Darwinian arguments right mm-hmm. now. And and most of them recognize that evolution in its weak form, change over time, definitely occurs. Um, but that doesn't mean that you have to wholesale buy into all the particulars of the Darwinians that come after in the 20th century. Yeah, that's like, it's, and and then the opposite of that is, um, as far as like a you know, Genesis is a, is is absolutely scientifically histor you know, historical. So mm-hmm. that's a, it's a scientific document. The opposite of that is no, it's just a narrative. Mm-hmm. And so you have those two sides. And if anybody's interested to get a good clean, uh, I would say a good clean exegetical view of that would be to read Kingdom Prologue by Meredith oh, Klein. Yeah. Framework view. So, <laughs> man, I really, I, we need a Klein, a Klein stinger. Because, man, yeah, but it, I think it really is an example of Klein cares more about the textual exegesis of what scripture is saying about itself. And yeah. historicity is a part of that. In other words, science isn't dictating what we say about Adam before the text is dictating what we say about Adam. And, and that's exactly right. That is that is the bottom line of the whole discussion. So, you know, uh, institutions like Westminster and churches like the OPC and the PCA recognize that you can be um, a 24-hour literalist, um, you can be a day age, or you can be a framework view holder, and all those are valid. But the important thing is the method uh, which you use to do that, and that is first and foremost relying on Scripture and not letting the current philosophical and scientific yeah. climate determine what scripture says. Right. Um, so the conclusion, I mean, the clu- the conclusion is very important, but I think even the method and um, the way you use scripture is the bottom line in those discussions. A question I had to Dr. Garner referring to this subject when we were doing Doctrine of Man and we were uh, basically doing an exegesis of Genesis 1 and 2, the interesting thing about all the different views that came to the table about how you can take Genesis is that it's even the Christian views, right? None of them did the first rule of interpretation when it comes to any other text, which is given from you know Luke 24, 2 Corinthians 3, which is you have to interpret this first and foremost through Christ, yeah. or else it is no interpretation. And so, and I, I saw that that is actually lacking. You can hold to a 24-hour view, that's fine. 
But what you're not doing justice to the text is what the text demands, which is how is this pointing to, you know, God's son? How is it that Hebrews 1 makes these claims about Genesis 1? And so I just thought that is actually the framework for you that actually talked more about that than anything else. They talked more about the first rule of interpretation when it comes to Scripture as opposed to what does science have to say about the subject? Yeah. So, yeah. anyways... It's an interesting perspective on on these issues, and yeah. So uh, to bring uh, bring the cart back around um, to the full Vienna circle, <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> oh. Bring it full Vienna circle. That, I like that. I is like that, that cheesy or good? Uh, yeah. uh, somewhere in between. I was gonna say I it's really clever, like but, yeah. illogical negativism, but <laughs> that was, <laughs> that would there be. you go. Well, uh, yeah, logical positivism. Uh, Thank you very much for that overview. Uh, it's an important thing to know about and uh, definitely influential even into the modern day. So that's right. Uh, t- if you want to find more, you can pick up the Jones volume, The 20th Century to Quine and Derrida by uh, W.T. Jones, the fifth volume in his history on Western philosophy. Otherwise, you can do a search or go to your library, talk to your librarian, and I'm sure he or she will be able to point you to many great resources. You can find more of Jonathan and Jared's fruits of their labor at <laughs> facebook.com slash Westminster Online. And iTunes. And iTunes U is, and also youtube.com slash Westminster Online. You can visit us online at reformforum.org. Mail us, email us, mail at reformforum.org. Twitter us at reformforum. We hope you join us again next time on Philosophy with Theologians. That's stupid.